Thank you. Jenny. Hi, Deborah. Sounds good. Miles sounds great. I only sound good. Oh, you, you sound wonderful now that you're smiling. <laughs> How's that? How's that? Yeah. Hi. Hi, Jim. Hi, how you doing? Jim, did you figure out how to pin the uh, yeah, I, presentation? I'm, I'm on my iPhone. I didn't get it on my computer, so I'm on my iPhone. Okay, sounds good. If that works? That works. Just don't forget to mute yourself if you're moving and, and speaking. Turn off your camera if you're moving, moving around because the camera is motion and sound activated. Okay, so if I need to mute, how do I do that? Speak. <laughs> Done speaking. Okay. Did you figure it out? You did. You can hear me now. Now you can hear me. Uh, yes, we can hear you. Okay, thank you. Sorry about that, Jim. Yes, we can hear you. Okay, thanks. Hey, where's the cord? Oops, sorry. Can you hear me now? Yes, I can hear you, Jim. Okay, I'm trying to figure this out. Yeah, I was heard. Oh, trying to get this on my computer, but I don't see that the email didn't show up. You want me to resend you the email? Yeah, that'd be great. If I can get on my computer, I can get off my iPhone before the battery goes south on me. <laughs> hey, Deborah. Okay, Jim, I'm going to send it to you now. Thank you.
Hmm, there it is. Deborah, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Did we get any uh, written public comments ahead of time? No, we did not. Okay. And do we have any requests for uh, public comment at this time? Yes, we have one for agenda item three. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Thanks, Miles. Um, I'm trying to figure this out on my computer. November meeting. Uh, it says, are you going tonight? Uh, said, yes, I'm going. Does it come up on my computer screen? It should be in that email, Jim. The link yeah. is in the email. Okay, I, I got the email and oh, here comes my wife. Maybe she can help me. Let me Where? see if I can find a different one method for go, you. go down to see if you see there's more there's nothing more down there oh or maybe it uh, no that's not this is the preview untitled yeah usually i know what the link looks like yeah i don't see the link just use your phone hey, so, hi jim uh -huh. i'll call you on this um, your cell phone because okay. right now we're recording so hold oh, on okay Very go good. ahead and mute yourself and i'll call you on the cell phone Okay. I should be muted now. You are not muted. <laughs> okay. Uh, your microphone is unmuted.
Hey, Susan. Hello. We're just getting to the right breakout room. All right. I think I'm here. Well, it's... Uh, so, Grant, I think we're just waiting for Nova. Jim to get connected again. Okay. And then we can begin. Okay. Bob's not going to be here. Is Nova going to be here? I'm here. Oh, there you are. Okay, great. Yeah. Oh, I see. If there's a box here, there. Okay. Grant, Jim is still working on his connection, so he said to go ahead and start. Okay, then we will. <clears throat> okay, um, this is the uh, November 17th meeting of the Ventura Water Commission. It is now 536. And uh, Deborah, if you would call the roll. Commission Ac Commissioner Ackerman is absent for now. Commissioner Clyte. Here. Commissioner Hubner. Here. Commissioner McCombs. Here. Commissioner McCord is absent. Commissioner Mulligan. Here. And Commissioner Chair Burton. Here. Thank you, Deborah. Uh, number, item number one is the minutes. Are there any additions, deletions, or corrections to um, the October 27 minutes? Hearing none, I'll take a motion. So <laughs> and do we have a motion and a second as of now? Second from Suzanne. Thank you. Deborah. Commissioner Ackerman is absent. Commissioner Clyde? Yes. Commissioner Hoomner? I'm going to abstain. Commissioner McCombs? Yes. Commissioner McCord is absent. Commissioner Mulligan? Yes. And Commissioner Burton? 
Yes. Yeah, that's uh, four. Okay, item number two, Groundwater Sustainability Agencies and Santa Paula Basin Technical Advisory Committee update. And it falls to Jen. Okay. Good evening. Uh, I'm sorry, Jennifer, hold on one second. Okay. Okay, go ahead. Okay, I'm uh, good evening, everyone. Here to give a presentation on the update of our groundwater sustainability um, plans in progress um, since we've done one. So uh, I'm going to try to be brief, but there is a lot to cover. Next. Okay, so the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act was passed in 2014 um, to improve management of groundwater basins and give local agencies a chance to manage their basins. Uh, requires the formation of the groundwater sustainability agencies, um, and that was due by uh, 2017. And then um, the completion of groundwater sustainability plans. Um, in, You're kind uh, of going in and out, Jennifer. Oh, sorry. Um, Maybe to speak. Yeah, it might be my connection, hopefully. Um, um, let me check one thing. Yeah. If they admit me, you can use my computer. Okay. Am I still coming in and out? You're just a little bit low. Yeah. Uh, Commissioner oh, Ackerman. Is that better? Yes. Yeah. Jim. Sorry, Jenny, just one moment. Yourself? Okay. Yeah, this is Ackerman. It's on my computer. Okay, great. You've joined the meeting now and if you could mute and we're on item two and Jenny Trebo is gonna continue with her presentation. Thank you. Uh, okay, thank you. Okay, is that better? Can you hear me now? Yes. Okay. Okay, so uh, SIGMA requires the completion of the groundwater sustainability plans uh, for critically overdrafted basins. Those were due earlier this year and for other basins, high and medium basins are due in 2022. Um, and then those, those um, basins are required to meet uh, those, uh, the sustainable yield uh, identified in those plans within and maintain that sustainability within 20 years. Next. So the, the city extracts groundwater from four groundwater basins, um, San Paula, which is classified as very low and considered adjudicated for purposes of Sigma. So there's no uh, groundwater sustainability agency required. Um, uh, Mound Basin is a high priority basin and um, the, that GSP is due in uh, January of 2022. Um, Oxnard Plain is a high priority uh, is critically overdrafted and is due um, was due uh, earlier this year in January, and that was um, approved and submitted in, in December of 2019. Um, Upper Ventura River ground, uh, Upper Ventura River Basin is a medium priority, and again that that one's due um, in January of 2022. 
And then the city overlies the fifth basin, the lower Ventura River, but is classified as low and again does not require uh, a groundwater sustainability agency or a groundwater sustainability plan at this time. Next. Okay, so for Upper Ventura River uh, Groundwater Agency, um, since it's been so long since we've had one of these, I just decided for both uh, Upper Ventura and Mound to just really go over. Um, they're really in the uh, in the past. They've been in the develop the agency development stage, and now um, both GSAs are really in their GSP development phase. And so, um, just kind of going to go over where they're at in that process. Um, Upper Ventura, they had a, a workshop in July that um, their first workshop to go over their GSP development. They went an overview of the process, the schedule, and the work prepared to date. Um, they have approved their data management system um, uh, and it's under development. Um, they work, they've completed the hydrogeologic uh, conceptual model. Um, and the groundwater conditions, at least in draft, um, and those are available for review on their website. Um, and then as, as part of the data development for the GSP, they've, they're working on installing additional stream gauges at Camino Cielo and at Santa Ana Bridge. Um, and they've uh, worked with the city to put um, uh, equipment in the uh, groundwater monitoring wells in Foster Park. So they've been collecting that data. And then um, the um, model development and sustainability criteria is underdeveloped now and will continue through next year. And then they're planning to have a draft GSP um, next spring slash summer uh, out for public review and then um, to have the GSP, you know, ready to be submitted by the end of the year. Next. So for Mound Basin, it's a very similar schedule. Um, it's the same executive director and, and, and same um, consulting firm. So they're trying to you know, save costs and they're really on, on the same path. Um, so they've, again, they've done their data management systems, their drafts for the hydrologic conceptual model and groundwater conditions are available on the website. Um, they're currently working on the water budget um, and, the, and if there's any management areas necessary. Um, different here is the, um, while the Upper Ventura River Agency is developing their own model, Mound Basin will be, is able to utilize United's updated groundwater model. Um, and so that one is in the final stages of, it's been developed, um, it's had an internal review and external review. Um, it's been calibrated. Currently they're working on model validation um, and so um, that should be available relatively soon. Um, so um, that's looking to be complete early next year. Um, and then they'll start working, the water budgets will be done next year and then the draft will be ready uh, spring, summer. And again, uh, adopt the GSP in late 2021. Next. Okay, so uh, for Fox Canyon, um, Again, the Fox Canyon Groundwater Management Agency is the um, acting GSA for um, the Oxnard Plain Basin. The allocation ordinance for Oxnard Plain was approved in October of last year. And the GSPs were approved in December. 
uh, facilitation began um, this um, spring and um, the allocation ordinance was effective on October 1st um, of this year. So I'm gonna go over a little bit of details, the next few slides, next. So for the allocation ordinance, again, that was approved um, last year. Um, the base that establishes the initial allocations um, is 20, 2005 through 2014. That puts the, um, the city's uh, initial extraction at um, 5,304 acre feet um, that just started on October 1st. Um, so these, uh, this is a little bit of an outdated slide, apologies. Um, for the, um, the final ordinance did address Santa Clara River surface water deliveries in terms of a, a flex allocation to those users. Um, and it did include a care of a provision for surface water or for, um, for all allocations. Um, and again, it was, it was approved um, last October and it was effective October 1st. Um, and then and because the uh, ordinance was not to be effective until um, for a year later, uh, Fox Canyon did in December um, vote to repeal the portions of emergency ordinance E that required a 20% reduction for the M&I uh, pumpers. And so that did restore um, the city's allocation um, to 4,827 acre feet per year. And uh, that was in place from January 1st until the end of September of this year. Um, next. So again, the GSP was uh, approved and submitted um, last December. Um, it utilized uh, United's um, groundwater model uh, to look at uh, undesirable results and identifying sustainable yield. Uh, it looked at um, yield with projects and without projects. Uh, it included um, only uh, projects that were uh, at a stage that, that had some level of certainty of implementation and some level of um, added yield and costs. And so those were, there was only a couple of projects included. Um, there were no management um, strategies recommended or, or ramp downs uh, towards sustainable yield. Um, and, uh, so that's all uh, to be worked out now in the implementation process. They're just um, the sustainable yield uh, for both Oxnard and Pleasant Valley uh, basins together uh, was 50,600. Um, Current extraction rates uh, are, are um, 88,000 and base period extraction is around 90,000. So it's about a 44% reduction, um, even with the um, included projects. Um, next. And so there was, you know, um, concerns with the, um, the steep, you know, the, the large difference between um, current pumping and sustainable yield and the lack of projects included in um, the GSP, um, there were um, several, some legal challenges and some threatened legal challenge challenges. Um, and so um, Fox Canyon uh, agreed to uh, a, facil a facilitated stakeholder process. Um, I'm gonna go over a little bit next. 
just because kind of the framework um, in terms of well, Fox Canyon, again, uh, obviously remains the decision maker that there's um, needed to be um, sort of a, um, a process for stakeholder, for the core stakeholders to provide input and um, to, to staff and ultimately to the board. Um, so this just kind of um, sets out that, that structure and framework. Um, next. Um, so this is the, the breakdown of the groups um, that are represented on the core stakeholder group. Um, there are, I think, about um, 15 representatives currently. Um, we started meeting in um, June, and we've been meeting twice, a twice per month ever since. Um, I'm representing the city on that core stakeholder group. Um, next. And so these are really the, the key topics that the, the group is tackling um, and hoping to address and provide guidance um, back to the board. Um, GMA staff is involved in the discussions as well. So those include um, basin optimization, um, refining the sustainable yield, um, ramp down to the sustainable yield, adding additional projects, um, if there should be a replenishment fee and what that might look like, um, and then governance of those projects that are discussed or developed. Next. So um, there's when there's the core stakeholder group, and then there's two subgroups, a legal ad hoc group and a projects group. Um, the, the legal ad hoc group was formed to address uh, water rights and property rights issues related to the allocation and the ramp down. Um, and, and so that is um, attorneys of the seven uh, core group members are um, and been meeting at least once a month, sometimes more often. Um, and Miles Hogan and I are representing the city on that ad hoc committee. Okay, and then the projects um, committee was um, formed to look at, you know, as I said, um, not many projects were included in the GSP itself, um, and there was a real ancillary process during GSP development to discuss projects, and so uh, folks wanted a little bit more of a robust discussion and consideration of projects. Uh, so there's a, this group um, has been meeting over the past few months. Um, it includes representatives from United um, and Fox Canyon staff. Um, Curtis Hobson is representing the city on this committee. And it's really to uh, analyze and frame options for increasing the sustainable yield. Um, also considering cost benefit, project feasibility, um, impacts to water quality um, and when these projects might come online. Um, and actually today the projects committee um, can be their initial presentation to the core stakeholder group on some um, proposals, some uh, potential projects and proposals um, focus, focus primarily on um, United's projects um, that they have in the pipeline um, have been considering um, and then and some other um, smaller projects that may or may not be uh, feasible. 
And then um, for the Santa Paula Basin, um, the annual report was completed on October 13th um, and the Technical Advisory Committee continues to meet as necessary. And with that, I will take any questions. Okay, uh, if it's okay with the commission, I'll go in order like we did last time. I thought it, it um, until the end would work great. So uh, Susan Mulligan. Jennifer, uh, that was a good report. Thank you. What um, you mentioned, you said for Fox Canyon GMA that you expected that the allocations would go down maybe about 40%. What do you see for all the other groundwater basins? Are they operating sustainably now? Do you think there'll be a reduction? Santa Paula, you know, all, all the rest of the basins. What do you know now about what the future yields might be? So for Santa Paula, we're in the we're in the judgment, um, and that will depend on um, monitoring of of groundwater levels and the triggers. Um, but so far, we haven't seen any reductions there. Um, for Mound Basin, um, I think you know based on Curtis's report, you know they'll be modeling, and there's a lot of work done to be in Mound Basin, so we don't know for sure. But based on Curtis's report and analysis of at least the water budget. You know, we're we're um, not expecting um, huge reductions in the mound basin. Um, maybe some refinements, maybe some reductions, um, um, but not not expecting a lot there. Um, for Upper Ventura River, um, it's a little bit too soon to know um, how that's going to um, shake out. I think um, with the release of the physical solution, I think. We're hoping that will be more of the driving force uh, for sustainable yield there, uh, but we don't know for sure. Um, so I think for it's really too soon to tell um, for Upper Ventura and for Mound, really. Thank you. Okay, Suzanne, anything? Um, no questions, more a comment, and that would be that um, I understand that the format of the staff report is typically set up probably to align with how you do it for city council, um, but it would be especially helpful for us if perhaps you added you know, some sort of a high level, here's why this is important this month. Here's the context for what I'm presenting to you. Um, because to me, what we end up with in the staff report is a lot of history. Um, and it's sort of like, well, why do I, you know, why is this important to me this month would be my request going forward if you can. Thank you, Suzanne. Gerhard, anything? Yeah, just a few questions. Um, on page two of six and three of six, there's reference to a sustainability goal for the Upper Ventura River and the Mound. Could you tell me what that goal is? What did they adopt? Um, so, <laughs> It sounds like it would be like one or two sentences, but it's it's a whole page um, of um, bullet points and objectives, and it's it's not really a simple statement. It's more of a. Um, it's not a a simple numeric. Um, it's not a numeric. It's goals. 
it's it's on their web on that. each web each website has the goals on there they're very similar for both of them and we can provide those to the um to the commission that'd be great thanks okay um next question uh on the oxnard plane so you referenced 5304 acre feet is your new allocation just did my math um like you're going to have to get to 3,500 absent any new projects. That's about, and if you do a straight linear for 20 years, that's about 90 acre feet per year. Is that roughly correct in terms of a reduction over time? So about 1,800, yeah, about 1,800 acre feet. It looks like you're going to have to, the city's going to have to replace in some fashion or shape. Yeah, that sounds about right. I think we the the analysis that I had in the um, CWRR is came I did after the GSP, so it's still accurate. I can't remember exactly what those numbers are, but that sounds about right. It's a a linear ramp down um, to that forty four percent reduction. Again, that's just hypothetical because that hasn't been implemented by the GSA. So uh, by by the GMA, there's you know they could do. Other, they could impose other ramp downs. Um, we could also see uh, implementation of projects that might um, slow that ramp down or raise that sustainable yield. So I sure. think um, that's really a worst case scenario is that um, linear ramp down uh, to 2040. Okay, very good, thank you. And then lastly, I just saw some reference on page five of six of the staff report various stakeholders either filed lawsuits or threatened legal action. Is the city one of those? And that's a Miles question. No, we did not. Okay, thanks. That's all my question. Hey, Miles. <clears throat> okay, thank you, uh, Gerhard. Nova, do you have anything? Uh, yes, with respect to the projects being considered, um, under, I believe under the Fox Canyon, GSP. Um, is the water pure aquifer storage one of those projects and um, how, how is that being discussed and what, what are some of the ramifications for that GSP or our involvement with that GSP if water pure water goes from um, indirect potable to direct potable? I'll, I'll start off answering that, and then I'll probably gonna turn it over to Susan or Miles. But um, the we have not submitted any projects to the GSP for consideration. Um, the you know they were, one of them was potentially you know uh, they were we were being asked if we were going to send it to Oxnard, and that decision is no. Um, right now, the way that the um, uh, indirect Potable is planned for Ventura Water Pure. We're not considering it a project. Um, I think because there's still some unknowns with um, how that project will be operated and how it will impact our other water supplies that we haven't done that as a project, but um, we are looking to um, have more flexibility in the carryover allocation to allow us to do um, more conjunctive use in the basin with that would um, help us um, manage our supplies more efficiently. Um, 
and we're hoping to have um, water market available to um, the municipal and industrial users so that we can um, you know, monetize our allocation when it's necessary, when we have extra water. Um, and then I think when that project gets further along um, and we know how we might manage it in conjunction with the basin, we may um, have discussions with Fox Canyon and others about how that might impact the yield. But for right now, uh, we have not done so. Okay, thank you. That's just, just to follow up on uh, that question, is the rules of the ordinance still allow uh, one for one? For example, you inject one acre foot of water into the aquifer, you can pull out one acre foot? There are existing ordinances that allow it. And that's right. something we'll be talking to Fox Canyon about. Right. Okay, thanks. Nova, anything else? No, that's it. Thank you, Jennifer. Okay, Jim, do you have anything? You gotta unmute Jim. <laughs> Jim, you're muted. You gotta you have to unmute. Uh, okay. There you are. Was there for a minute? Jim, you're still muted. We can't hear you. I can see the little red uh, speak the microphone. Mute. There you are. Oh, you can hear me now. Okay. Uh, no questions. I just got hooked up with Zoom, so I'm listening and learning. Thank you. Okay, anyone else? Okay, uh, for my part, other than seconding uh, Suzanne's suggestion to give us a little more context on something like this, um, that's a lot of work you guys put into this, Jenny, and I appreciate it. So, um, um, thank you. Next is item number three, the 2020 Water and Wastewater Rate Study, Revised Financial Plans and Rate Structure Modifications Options. And I don't know if Akbar is here. There he is. Hey, Akbar. He, so I'm going I'm to go ahead and start it off. Thank you, Susan. Um, Chair Burton. So there's really two parts to this agenda tonight. Uh, one is really the revised and the, really what we hope to be the final, final financial plan. We're going to be presented. Um, and really, we want to stop after that, kind of talk about that issue. And then we're going to go into another discussion on the rate structure, modification options, and provide some options and recommendations with possible approval tonight. Um, so tonight, Kevin is going with Reptelis, Kevin Kostick with Reptelis is going to be presenting. Uh, Charles Diamond, I believe, is here also to available for questions. Um, Akbar Ali Khan, the Assistant City Manager, he's also going to provide some direction and information at the end of the presentation. And then um, Michael Kuhn, I believe, is here also tonight for any questions and so we'll go ahead and Kevin, take it away. Good evening, commissioners. Great to be back with you again. Um, I am looking to see how we go into presentation mode here. Sorry, I think I missed the instructions on here uh, to see the presentation in full screen. So, Kevin, if you go to the box that has the uh, presentation in it, 
and hover over the top right corner, a blue box Great. will appear and you can pin it. Okay, and uh, you'll still be advancing slides, I take it? Yes, someone will be advancing the slides. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Okay, if we can, if we can advance to our second slide. So as Susan mentioned, we're gonna present a, a third iteration of the financial plans. First, um, we'll show you what those revisions were and have a discussion period and then go into our rate structure uh, options where we'll talk about water first, um, a few slides on drought rates, and then we'll go into a discussion on modifications on the wastewater side of the house. Next slide. So we're gonna provide you these updated financial plans um, based on scenario 3A that was presented last meeting. Um, the two big revisions involve the O&M projections on Ventura Water Pier and the phase 1B capital cost for Ventura Water Pier. And then as I mentioned, we'll, we'll discuss the rate structure modifications. And really what we're looking for here is some feedback from you. Um, I'll give a, kind of a suite of options um, with some recommendations um, and hopefully we can narrow down those options in our Q&A at the end for us to be able to model and bring back to you in subsequent meetings. Next slide. One more, please. So the revision to Ventura Water Pure O&M projections, uh, the last iteration um, and the iterations before that, we were assuming nine full-time equivalents FTEs um, during this pre-operation period of Ventura Water Pure, so before fiscal year end 2026. Now we've uh, identified that those nine FTEs are partially allocated to uh, CIP. And so we've, we've revised that downward, which is um, fairly substantial. And then the additional 16 FTEs post-completion, post-fiscal year end 2026, um, have also been revised somewhat downwards. And so what this does is it revise, it, it's a significant savings over both our five-year rate setting period, but also the 10-year the horizon. Um, and that reduction increases both the water and the wastewater side of the house debt capacity in future years. So how much debt we could practically issue going forward. The second major revision I mentioned is the phase 1B capital costs. Those uh, have now been incorporated. It's about $30.4 million in total uh, between fiscal year and 2027 and 2030. And we've allocated those specific projects uh, to the, excuse me, those projects to their specific uh, components and divvied up based on our prior allocations to uh, water and wastewater respectively. And for the for uh, phase 1B, we're assuming similar financing, financing assumptions uh, as for phase 1A. And if we can advance one slide, I think I have more detail there. Uh, so the detail on the changes to the O&M side here um, from the October 27th meeting, uh, and you can see the we've got fiscal year end 2021, that's our current, uh, current year, all the way through fiscal year end 2026. On the bottom line in the table, which is the bottom line, um, we see some significant savings even beginning next fiscal year, $1.5 million, $2.3 million, uh, and so on. So you can see over that six-year period, uh, we're down to something on the order of $25 million um, with those revisions to the pre-operation O&M. 
Next slide. So on phase 1B, um, the way that we modeled this um, is dictated on our assumption of how the project will be considered by WIFIA. And we are uncertain if this is going to be considered an extension and one loan and one project, an extension of phase 1A, or if it's going to be considered its own project. And so to be safe, what we're assuming is that it is its own project, but we're going to finance it in a similar manner as phase 1A. So that combination of WIFIA, of SRF loans, and of revenue bonds. And to do so, what we did was basically took a, a weighted average of those three different instruments, assumed a 3.5% rate, a 30-year term uh, with 2% issuance costs, and making interest-only payments um, as we would with um, WIFIA through 2030, so through our 10-year planning horizon. And when we, need, when we use those assumptions, we add about $1.1 million in annual debt service uh, beyond fiscal year and 2027. So that's an additional $1.1 million in debt service uh, beyond what we showed in uh, the October 27th meeting. Next slide. So our new scenario 3A, and we're starting with water, and recall this is our adjusted CIP. So that's uh, a 75% uh, completion of our capital program in any fiscal year. Uh, and that amounts to about $14.2 million per year. So when we update our assumptions on Ventura Water Pure O&M, on the additional phase 1B capital costs, uh, our revenue adjustments over the 10-year horizon are 7% per year. Uh, in the table there, you see the 7%, and then we have our assumptions on debt required for Ventura Water Pure, and then furthest right would be the, any additional debt for our capital, our regular R&R program. And so there's a, an assumed $15 million issue in 2027. And so that, that allows us to achieve our reserve uh, minimums each year over that long term. And if we go to the next slide, we'll show that we're also meeting our coverage requirements. So our debt capacity uh, increases as we go through the rate plan and generating additional revenue. Uh, then we generate, excuse me, issue additional debt um, in 2027. And then in the years beyond that, our, our debt coverage climbs again. Next slide. So the comparison to what we showed on October 27th versus tonight, 8% uh, across the board, now 7% across the board. So those two major changes were able to save us 1% each year over uh, the next nine years, uh, nine year uh, planning horizon. So cumulatively 63% versus 72%. Next slide. So wastewater, uh, exactly the same update as water. Um, adjusted CIT, the 75% in any year, uh, which corresponds to about $8.9 million per year in capital. Revenue adjustments of 6% per year each year and a, a modest debt issue in fiscal year 2028 of $8 million. Next slide and showing coverage again. And next slide. So the comparison again to uh, the prior iteration, 8% uh, 
in the five-year rate setting period or the right the, the five-year horizon and now down to six percent so we we're able to shave off two percent on the wastewater side and that's really a function of um, how those phase 1b capital costs fall um, as well as kind of the magnitude of that effect on the wastewater utility being smaller in um, its revenue base relative to the water side of the house so six percent uh, rather than five years of eight and then six years thereafter, or six percent thereafter. And next slide. So before we go to the rate options, um, I know it was included in the staff report that staff would like to um, open up the discussion again of the three-year rate setting period versus a five-year plan based on these revisions. So I'm gonna send it back to um, Akbar and Susan to discuss. Thanks, Kevin. So as Kevin mentioned, in the staff report, we do kind of summarize uh, the decision that we'd like Water Commission to make tonight. Kevin discussed three key changes that have had some material effect on our financial outlook. Uh, just recapping, that is removing the majority of the construction team's costs out of the O&M budget. Um, second, it's reducing the operations team from Ventura Water Pure from 25 personnel down to 16. And then third, on the other side of the ledger, including those phase 1B costs into 2027 and beyond. And so what I hope we have shown tonight is that we've gone back, uh, sharpened our pencils, we've listened to the comments from the commission and the public, and taken another hard look at some of the major assumptions that went into the financial plan model. And so tonight, um, what we're asking of the Water Commission is to essentially, in light of these revisions, if there's a willingness to go back and revise the, their prior decision, I sensed some uncertainty around confidence in the data last time around and um, staff fully acknowledges that. Um, but I'm hoping tonight we showed that we really have gone back and uh, taken another hard look at this. So we're asking the Water Commission to go back, revise their prior direction and um, recommend a five-year rate schedule instead. And that's again, based on water going down to 7%, and wastewater going down to 6%. So with that, um, staff will take any questions that the commission may have. Okay, thank you, Akbar. Uh, we will uh, go in order again, uh, Susan Mulligan. Akbar, I don't have any questions. I wanna thank you for taking all our suggestions and comments seriously. I feel comfortable with your assumptions at this point, and I would be comfortable with a five-year approval with checkbacks, um, I think in year three, I forget what you put in the staff report, but checkbacks to be sure that those are really needed in the out years. But uh, I, I think you've done a good job and uh, I would support that. Thank you, Susan. Suzanne? Uh, I, I would second what Commissioner Mulligan has said, and that is I really appreciate you guys going back and reviewing your assumptions again. I think that was my main concern last time. Um, as I was trying to allude at the end of the last meeting, I think that given our overall concerns about um, whether or not we can actually accomplish this very aggressive CIP in the timeframe that's laid out, I think with that in mind, it's very reasonable for us um, to qualify our recommendation for a five-year approval with the, the caveat that we need to have check-ins to see where how we're doing on that CIP. I think that's a valuable um, you know, opportunity to assess for both city council and also for our residents to understand that 
you know, we have no interest in raising rates beyond what is required. Um, if we can move forward with the progress that Mr. Nelson thinks we can and we can build it out that fast, then we're going to need these increases. But if we get held up, whether due to staffing or to permitting, I think it's important that we have an ability to say to the public, you know, Prop 18 gave us the right to go up to seven, but if we're not meeting that schedule uh, for X year, we're only going to increase it to four and a half percent or five percent or whatever makes sense at that time. So with that in mind, I could support a five-year rate study. Thank you, Suzanne. Good comments. So, Gerhardt? <clears throat> oh, um, it was unfortunate that I couldn't attend the, the last meeting. Um, and I understand I did read the, the minutes and I did look at the, the staff reports and the information from the last meeting as well as this meeting. I still have some concerns about the uh, personnel costs and I didn't really see how the adjustments other than it went from 10 down to nine or, or 20, 25 down to 16. I mean, I, I actually would like to see where comparable um, pure water facilities and, and how they're staffing it. Um, we have Monterey Regional that the example, Pismo is undertaking efforts as well as San Diego. But I do have some concerns about uh, the personnel costs. Um, something I did ask in the previous, back at the September meeting in terms of the, the percentages the column and, and how those are expressed or translated into monthly costs. So um, I didn't see at the, either the last uh, package or this one, that translation. So it's hard for me to understand really what the monthly costs are going to increase at a 6% rate or a 7% rate or cumulatively at the end of the five years. And then lastly, I have a little, uh, questions. This is more of a question about how this annual check-in, um, if this really is going to be a review then I have some concerns if this actually is a check-in, whether that if uh, um, there actually has to be an affirmative vote or advisory vote uh, with city council's backing, um, that's a that's a separate issue. So right now I'm I'm still at the three-year um, versus the five-year. Thanks. Chair Burton, can I address a couple of the concerns that were raised? Of course. Okay. Certainly, I welcome that. Thanks, Commissioner Hubner. And maybe let me start with the the percentages and how they translate into a rate. Um, as part of any rate setting process, this is kind of the first step. We see what the revenue adjustment needs to be for each enterprise, which is what uh, Kevin and his team is trying to accomplish tonight. And then really the the decisions you make at the at the second half of tonight's discussion is going to then translate into an actual rate. And that's what the December 15th meeting is all about. So after the direction that you and your colleagues provide Kevin and Raph to tell us tonight, he'll be able to go back and say, okay, uh, the, the commission approved a 7% increase on water for five years and a 6% increase on wastewater for, for five years. Here's what that rate is going to be for every year of the study period. But again, that, that's based on a policy decision um, that the, the rest of the commission will weigh in on and the um, initial rates, the draft rates, if you will, uh, won't be available until December 17th, which is why we, we just weren't able to produce that back in September. As far as the, the annual check-in is concerned, um, in my conversations with staff and a couple of the commissioners over the past couple of weeks, um, the, the idea there would be, we have to demonstrate as staff that we're actually going to spend the money that's being generated. And I think the concern that was brought up last meeting is that 
history has shown us, the, the Water Commission and the City Council um, have really done their job in terms of approving the, the rates that are needed to generate that revenue, but staff hasn't historically spent the money to reinvest back in the system. And so what that does is it creates a, a reserve balance that just kind of sits there until it's used. And it, we're essentially raising funds unnecessarily. And um, I would like that the check-in is actually a, a firm approval from this board or from this uh, commission that yes, we do, we are on track to spend the money and yes, um, we are authorizing um, the Prop 218 schedule to go ahead as noticed. And if we're not, that we then, um, this, this commission can make the recommendation that we adjust that downward. Um, logistically, how that works, I would defer to Mr. Hogan, um, but I, I, as staff, as your assistant city manager, uh, Commissioner Hubner, I would, I would suggest that there be a real authorization that needs to take place um, from this recommending body to the city council. So that'd be my suggestion. That's our commitment to this commission. Just one other follow-up you know, on the administrative costs. Is there uh, something that the staff have, perhaps I haven't seen it, in terms of how you came up with your construction team of 10 FTEs? And, and it's not clear to me whether when you talk FTEs, you're going to staff that, or is that going to be consultant services of an equivalent? Um, and then later with the O&M, um, how those, those values, those FTEs were generated. Yeah, I can speak to that, Commissioner Hubner. So um, one of the things we did when we did the operation and maintenance um, estimates, we had 10 FTEs. And what we did, we went to council on September 28th and city council approved the, when they looked at Ventura Water Pier and they looked at uh, what positions are needed for Ventura Water Pier for construction. Um, so we do have the council report that actually provides those nine positions plus some other consultant positions. So we revised the 10 down to nine, and then we took 70% of that, that should really be going to CIP projects. So we only left in 30% for the O&M. And then for the other number of personnel, this is for Ventura Water Pier facilities themselves. The original EIR had some information that we, we, that we used, and there were 25 positions. We have since looked at that, we met internally with staff and some consultants and we have what we, and we can provide that to the commission, um, uh, what we anticipate the, um, the employees to be there would be 16 staff members. So we can provide that backup information for you. I'd appreciate that. Thank you. And the explanation. Thank you, Gerhard. Um, Nova, do you have anything? No, uh, I would uh, just second um, what the other commissioners have already brought up that this, this was a great effort to address some of our concerns and I am comfortable with the annual check-in and going with a five-year rate period. Thank you. Thanks, Nova. Uh, Jim, make sure you're on mute. Jim, you're still muted. There you are. Okay. Uh, I, I read through this and I was uh, actually, I was um, pretty surprised when I noticed the difference in percentages from uh, the previous plan. And I think with the caveat of the annual rate check, 
uh, in each spring uh, of this uh, is actually kind of a, a good stopgap. So we're using the money that we're asking for uh, and we're not uh, holding money back and we're adjusting the rates accordingly based on what the needs are. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Okay. And I'm just, I'm reading some of my notes here that I took when I was uh, reviewing this and, and just the fact that we have the spring annual spring review of, uh, of what's going on with the study and where we're at in the construction uh, of the CIP and, and things that are going on. So that's just my thought. I thought it was good work. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. Anyone else before I go to the public comment? Okay. I understand there is public comment. Uh, Deborah? Yes, there is one public speaker. Oh, Bert. Hi, Bert. Hello, how are you doing? Good, how are you? Good. Let me turn my other uh, sound off here. <clears throat> you want me to speak now, Grant? Yes, please. Okay. Listening to you guys, I believe I agree with the five-year plan, but a couple things came up in going through the information and regarding the current city charges. One area I looked at was reclaimed water. We are charging 95 cents per HCF with that. And I believe that should be brought up to the equivalent of irrigation or at least a higher amount than that. Basically we're subsidizing as ratepayers the golf course watering system on that. And I believe that we should open that up and make it a fair evaluation because we as ratepayers are paying easement rights to the city of Ventura to run our pipes. So I don't think we should be dealing with that on two sides. Now on the other thing on that, regarding the uh, grouping, I believe we should have a group together to see if we can combine the lab costs. In other words, you've got Oxnard running their operation down there. And from listening to one of the people who came up to Ventura Water, they basically said that there are part-time employees down there doing the lab work for their system. I think that would be very good. So consequently, that would be an area where it would be, in my opinion, much better to work with that. And another area is we should, I believe, look at possibly charging a charge for the people on an elevation or a hillside. Now, the reason I say that is we have a pump charge or a pump cost to pump the water to the highest people in the city. A lot of areas use that. And if we're looking at rate fairness all the way through the city, I believe that should be addressed. Let's see here. So I have a couple of questions. What is the projected cost per acre foot and HCF for the project as a standalone project? Additionally, what is the projection cost for the blended water to customers per acre foot and HCF? I believe that's something that the citizens should be made aware of and at least be able to do a comparison to other areas. I have yet to see that in any comparison from Ventura Water from anything that they've ever put out. And I think that's an important factor. We also don't know what they're projecting the actual water that will be used out of the water, the water pure project. And I haven't seen anything on that either. Those are my comments, thank you. Thank you, Bert, I appreciate it. Um, at this time, what we're gonna do is uh, uh, entertain a motion, see if it's any other discussion and then we'll vote. So um, if someone has a motion. 
Commissioner Burton, may I ask, I may need to enlist the help of uh, Mr. Hogan to see if there's anything procedurally that we're overlooking in crafting a motion specifically for the financial plan. I just wanna make sure we get it right procedurally. Yeah, no, I understand, this is important. Uh, thank you, Akbar. I think how it's listed in the staff report is fine. Um, so I can read that off. <clears throat> Someone simply move move the staff recommendation. I think that would be adequate, Miles. Is that correct? Uh, yes. And let me let me just read it to make sure it's what Akbar had in mind. So you've received the written report and the oral presentation. Uh, review changes to the financial plan scenario and approve moving forward with the five-year rate adjustment schedule. And C is establish an annual rate check-in each spring of the study period to authorize rate adjustment necessary for upcoming July increase. Akbar, does that cover everything for this uh, portion? It sure does, Miles. I was just being very thorough. Thanks. Grant. Okay, thank you. Grant, this is Suzanne. I'll make that motion. Thank you. Do we have a second? I'll second. I'll second. Okay. I'll, I'll okay. Just make it then. Okay. <laughs> any, any further or additional discussion? Um, I just want to, you know, I'm going to support this motion with everything that's been discussed today in terms of uh, this annual rate check-in is is going to be not just a review, but a real uh, a real check-in with with some um, checks and balances. And you know, and the discussion of the additional information. So um, I just wanted to, to state that and, and get that on the record. Thanks, Gerhardt. And I'll add that uh, Akbar and Kevin and Susan Rungan, the, the responsiveness to the uh, um, commission's concerns last month was really excellent, and I appreciate it. So we have a motion that's been seconded. Uh, uh, Deborah, can you call the roll? Commissioner Ackerman. Yes. Commissioner Clyte. Yes. Commissioner Hubner. Yes. Commissioner McCombs. Yes. Commissioner McCord is absent. Commissioner Mulligan. Yes. Commissioner Burton. Yes. That passes. Motion passes. Good work, everyone. <clears throat> um, I'm not aware of any uh, overall public comment. Is that correct? There are no public uh, Commissioner comments. Burton, uh, Chair Burton. That was the first half of item three. Uh, I think at this point, um, oh. the consultant will move on to the second half of item three. Is that correct, Akbar? Miles, that is correct. We got another right. half to go. Okay. My bad. Okay. Thank you. Go ahead, Kevin. Thank you, Miles. And uh, it might be might be a little bit more than half, and this might be two thirds of it actually. Um, so we're going to leave the financial plan world where we're talking about gross revenue needs for the utility. And now we're going to start talking about rate design and how we structure uh, our rates, how we recover all the costs that we require. So the first step of that is our cost of service analysis. And that's really a technical and more procedural um, analysis that we do. And that identifies how we allocate costs um, uh, across the system and how we allocate those to different user classes. Now what we're going to talk about tonight are rate design options. So how we actually recover those costs to each one of our classes. Uh, you know, on the water side, we have 
single family and multifamily users. We have irrigation users. We have commercial users. Similarly, on the wastewater side, we have uh, all sorts of different non-residential uses, um, some with uh, varying strengths of wastewater that they discharge. So we're going to step through all of those different uh, components. Next slide, please. So what I want to start with first is uh, actually what we did first way back in the spring, which was our policy objectives exercise. Um, if you recall, we had a homework assignment for you. Uh, we uh, came back, identified what the results look like, and what I'm showing on this slide are our top three, or in this case, four, since we had a tie for third, uh, our top objectives. One is financial stability. So we want our rates to generate stable cash flow over the long term. Second was affordability, specifically affordability for essential use when we're thinking about uh, our residential users and indoor needs. And then the tie for third was another one on financial stability and then also defensibility. Next slide. And then in addition to the exercise we did with you, uh, staff did their outreach uh, to the community and I uh, picked some responses from uh, Haley's presentation from last meeting. And so there's public outreach responses here. Um, we see improved water quality and future water supply, uh, emergency preparedness, repair and replacing aging infrastructure and water conservation. And a lot of these I would think are um, kind of infrastructure related. Uh, they are even regulatory in nature, not too much as far as the rate structures go. But if we go to the next slide, there are some additional customer comments here and I've highlighted, I've used the highlighter um, to focus on number two and number three at the bottom there. Perception that large users get a break and lowest tier isn't wide enough. And uh, we're, we're speaking specifically on the water side of the house now. So a perception that large users get a break and that the lowest tier isn't uh, enough water in tier one. So the reason I revisit these objectives is we want this to be kind of our framework and our guiding principles when we when we think about how we evaluate different options, how does our existing rate structure serve us, how we might want to modify it, make changes, whether those are large or small. Next slide. So what I want to start with first is our, our overall cost recovery. And so we have revenues from our rate that are from fixed sources. We have revenues from our rates that are from variable sources. So on the water side, everybody pays a fixed charge based on the size of their water connection, their meter. And then we have variable charges based on the volume of water that you use in a given period. So when we start with the fixed charges, uh, what we're showing in the table here is uh, a range of rate revenue that we recover from those meter-based fixed charges. So the first one is 25% of rate revenues. And this reflects the historical revenue recovery for the city and, and I'd say close to a historical for a lot of agencies in Southern California, somewhere between 20 and 25%. 25% does provide some revenue stability and it does give control of the bill uh, to the customer to some degree. When we start increasing rate revenues, we've got 25 to 30%. Um, it's a modest increase. Right now we're at 27.5%. And that is really a function of reduced water demand. So as as water sales decline, the share of revenues from these fixed charges goes up in turn. So it's nothing that we did, it's simply math. It's simply the math. 
Um, so what that does though, is it does provide passively some additional revenue stability and two or 3% doesn't significantly affect affordability for low volume users. When we talk about fixed charges at 30% or greater than 30%, then we're really starting to increase our revenue stability and protecting against further decline in water demand or periods of, of uh, declining demand. But we can start affecting affordability for lower volume and low income customers. And it can also start to impact our conservation signaling because the more we put on the fixed charge, <clears throat> the less we have to differentiate through the tiers on the variable side. Uh, I'll note that uh, a lot of agencies are increasing their fixed charges and they're trying, everybody's in the same boat where we wanna balance revenue stability with affordability for customers and, and 25 to 30% is certainly the new normal. I think uh, our recommendation, uh, both Raptelis and our discussions with staff is to try and maintain this 27, 28% fixed charge revenue in our uh, updated rates. Next slide. So we're showing your existing commodity charges. These are your current rates, stage two rates that are in effect. The top table shows single family tiers, tiers one to four. Uh, the, we'll call them the bi-monthly, the tier definition. So six units in the first tier, <clears throat> up to 14 units in that bi-monthly period in the second tier. 30 in tier three and so on, and then the corresponding rates. And then the multifamily tiers, uh, same four tiers, different definitions, the same six units in the first tier, uh, then a 10 unit break point at tier two, 16 at tier three. Next slide. And then on the non-residential side, we have a series of uniform rates so we have our non-residential or you know, traditional commercial users, uniform rate of $3.98 per 100 cubic feet. That's our unit of water. Uh, an irrigation rate, 425. We have institutional users, uh, a handful of raw water users, and then reclaimed or recycled water, 95 cents per unit. Next slide, please. So for single family residential, we're going to evaluate both a three tier and a four tier structure. Historically, you had a three tier in your base rate. You've been at a four tier uh, indefinitely with drought rates in effect. And what we wanna do is we also wanna look at the, the basis for differentiating the tiers or, or where we come up with the tier break point. So why do we allot six units in tier one? Why do we allot uh, say 14 units in tier two and so on? and come up with a rational basis for doing so. And the differences between a three tier and a four tier are gonna be obviously the tier width. So how much water is allotted in each one of those tiers. It could play into the pricing differential. So if we go to three tiers or four tiers, we may have a greater spread in between each one of the tiers. And there might be more or less conservation signaling uh, in a three tier versus a four tier. So all that's to say, we'll be evaluating both a three-tier and a four-tier structure. Next slide. And what I wanted to show was our current tier breakpoints for our uh, SFR being single family residential users, our current tier definitions versus what our usage patterns look like. 
So the table on the right shows uh, the definition there, low winter use, so that's our lowest bimonthly period, uh, an average winter across two periods, our annual average use, average summer and peak summer to get an idea of how people within the class use water, how different the seasonal effects are. So in the lowest point of the winter, uh, folks are using about 10 units per single family residence. So that's only five units per month, which is uh, a little bit less than what we would consider efficient use for a household of three. So it's very, uh, very low water use. Average winter only ticking up one unit. Uh, your average annual is about 15 units per period. So that's seven and a half units of water per month. And then even in peak summer, we're looking at 11 units per month, 22 per period. So really only a doubling uh, between your lowest period and your peak period. And so we're gonna use those definitions as a starting point to say, where should we develop the breakpoints for tier one, tier two, tier three, and if we have a tier four. Next slide. Now into multifamily. So multifamily does have a tiered rate structure. They have four, that's my toddler. They have four tiers. Uh, and right now they have uh, a differentiated tier structure from single family. So tier one is the same, it's six units per period, but then tier two and tier three are different breakpoints between single family and multifamily. And we have a few options. We can maintain that differentiation between the two residential classes. Second option is that we could harmonize those tiers of single family and simply think of our residential users as a dwelling unit basis. So if tier one is six units and I have an apartment complex with 10 dwelling units, then that accounts tier one would simply be 60 HCF per month, 60, uh, 100 cubic feet. Option three would be to have a two tier rate structure for multifamily. And really the, the argument there is multifamily use is almost exclusively indoor. Uh, and so what we're saying is efficient indoor is tier one and then all use greater would, uh, or any irrigation demands on a master meter account would be in our second tier. And then the last option would be a uniform rate where we don't have tiers, we have a uniform rate uh, like our non-residential users. Next slide. So I wanted to do a bit of a comparison just so you, you see um, how the use compares between single family and multifamily within these tiers. So as I said, tier one is the same for single family, multifamily, zero to six units. <clears throat> and for single family, that's about 36% of all use in the class. But for multifamily, it's 52%. So you see just over a third of single family uses in the first six year units but over half of multifamily is in the first six units. And if we go to the upper end of the tier structure, tier four, uh, multifamily begins at use greater than uh, 16. Uh, and only 5% of all multifamily use is greater than 16. Now, if we look at the single family side, uh, tier three starts at 15. So I'm gonna do a rough comparison between the 15 and the 16. And if we sum up the single family use in tiers three and four, we see that there's 30% of single family use in tiers three and four. So to some degree, multifamily doesn't seem to be benefiting from the existing multifamily uh, structure and the, and the tier breakpoints themselves. Next slide. So I think I talked uh, a decent bit about this table already two slides back. 
Um, but what we're showing here are those, those four alternatives. So either harmonizing the tier structure with single family, maintaining a differentiated tier structure, having a separate two-tier structure or having a uniform rate structure, and then advantages and disadvantages. So harmonizing it, the advantage is that it's really simple for people to understand. It's easy to explain. It's just our residential class, and it depends on how many dwelling units you have. The disadvantage is that it doesn't reflect any class specifics as far as water use. If we differentiate it, then we're, we're accounting for the different water use in the classes, and we're uh, at least a perception that we're improving equity between those classes. But what it might result in is having some very narrow multifamily tiers. So if we use the same logic of saying uh, winter water use, average water use, summer water use, we might see that multifamily only has one or two units difference between tiers, say one, two, and three. In a two-tier structure, um, the advantage is, is that we're still using class characteristics, and we're kind of thinking of this again as, you know, specific to multifamily, we have almost all of our use indoors. And so we're thinking of it as tier one indoor or efficient use, and tier two thinking of it as inefficient or any irrigation demand. And this is this is improving equity for our master meter multifamily, where we, we know that there is some irrigation demand. But what can happen, and I had this happen uh, with the, an agency recently, is that we get some weird tier two rates that tend to be very high because if we have very little use in that upper tier, it might result in a very high rate. Um, and then a uniform rate structure, again, it's simple to understand, um, but we're not giving multifamily any benefit of having tiered, tiered water use. When this works really well is when we don't have dwelling unit information or if we don't know the full area of a meter service area. And so I think what we would recommend is trying to stick with the differentiation with single family. And if we end up having some, some issues with uh, developing those tiers because they are so narrow, then next we would uh, go look at either harmonizing with single family or having a, a separate two-tier structure. Next slide. Okay, we leave residential. Let me talk about Satikoi for a second. <clears throat> so Satikoi is a separate system. And what we would like to do in this uh, rate cycle is to develop commodity rates that are specific for the Satikoi system and its service area. We know it's a unique system. We know it has unique costs and we have identified those costs. We know what the direct costs are. We know what the overhead costs are. So it's a, it, it would be appropriate um, and fairly easy to identify a rate for that service area. What we would propose is that the commodity rates would have the same tiers as all your other single family residential users. So they would we'd have the same tier structure as everybody else in the service area. And the meter charges would just be the same as all others in the Ventura water uh, system. So same fixed charges, same tiers as far as number of tiers and definitions, but they would have a unique rate, the, the dollars per billing unit. Next slide. Okay, on to uh, drought rates. Again, we're staying on the water side and, and we're talking um, about 
rates or surcharges that are required in times of shortage. Next slide. I don't, <laughs> I don't expect anybody would recall this slide from back in March or April, um, but we wanna revisit how we structure these drought rates. So the first thing we say is, yeah, we know either uh, how supply changes or how supply changes and how we hope demand changes at each stage when we need a reduction of X percent, 10%, 20%, 30%. So we identify how much supply and demand changes. Then we identify how does the cost structure change? So as we move through the stages, it may be that we have additional costs for different sources of supply or different facilities, but we may have variable costs that we avoid as well. So we wanna identify what's the net change in our cost at each stage. And then we ask, how should we recover it? So what should the rate, the drought rate, the drought surcharge, what should that look like? And then obviously, how does it affect customers? What's the impact like? So that's the progression. Next slide. Uh, I think this may be an animation if we could. Thank you. <clears throat> so these are the four main options that we work with. Uh, objectives of, uh, or different objectives, I should say, on the far left, and then our four different options. So the first would be a monthly fixed charge, and we would essentially be recovering drought or shortage costs as a surcharge or an additional <clears throat> fixed charge based on meter size and meter capacity. Uh, the next would be a uniform commodity charge. So we simply say, uh, we know what our costs are, we know how much uh, demand that we're going to be recovering it over and it's uh, X dollars or X cents per unit of water. This is the, we're all in the, the boat, we're all swimming together during the drought. <clears throat> Everybody pays the same surcharge. When we go to the two on the right, now we're talking about tiering our uh, surcharges. So the first is a uniform percentage. So we say, we know what our rates are in base conditions. And when we identify what the additional costs are, we, we think of that as in a percentage term, and we simply allocate that proportionally across our, our tiers and our rates. Um, so everybody's rates would go up X percent at each stage. And then the inclining commodity charge is where we're actually differentiating the surcharge in each tier. So we're basically developing a separate or a unique uh, rate structure for drought conditions. And right now, your, uh, the way that the drought rates are, are structured are kind of in that far right corner um, where we're, we're not applying a surcharge to the lowest tier water. We're actually breaking tier, uh, a three tier structure into four tiers during shortage um, and I'm recovering those costs in the upper tiers. Next slide. So what we would recommend or is as follows. Um, to maintain these drought stage rates as a commodity rate. So not go to a fixed charge. The fixed charge, um, you know, we're gonna impact affordability because people don't have any control over the size of their meter. They have control over how much water they use. That works really well in certain areas that maybe we have a, a seasonal population. Um, Mammoth Community Water District has that and it works very well for, for them. But given uh, the demographics, your customer base, um, and your policy objectives, we would say, let's stick on the commodity side. And when we do that, we should evaluate both this uniform percentage and an inclining 
commodity rate. So either applying a X percent across all the base rates or uh, differentiating across the tiers. The other thing we want to do is to harmonize the number of tiers between the rate, the base rates and the drought rate structure. And so if we end up with a, a three-tier structure in our base single family rates, then we would like to have a three-tier structure on drought rates. And if it's four-tier, then four-tier. So we're going <clears> to <throat> make sure that we have the same number of tiers in, in base or non-shortage and shortage conditions. Uh, and then lastly, maintaining the same tiers uh, during base and drought stages. So not changing how much water is allotted between the tiers necessarily. And this is just keeping it, keeping it simple and easy to understand uh, for the customer, easy to explain for staff. Next slide, thanks. Okay, on to wastewater. Um, same revisit of the policy objectives exercise. Um, these are the same. I just wanted to make sure we saw them once more on the wastewater side. So again, financial stability, affordability for essential use, defensibility. Next slide. And I think we can skip one more. Okay. So the, the public outreach comment again, and, and now it's highlighted is um, what I picked out for the wastewater side, account for family size and property size <clears throat> and for wastewater go away for, from seasonal to monthly or quarterly. So keep that in mind. Next slide. The existing residential rate structure uh, for your wastewater users. So table on the top, single family, we have a, a bi-monthly fixed charge, um, a flow charge that is subject to a cap. So you, if you use more than 30 units of water um, on the water side, you don't get billed on the wastewater side. We're assuming that's all irrigation. Um, and that flow charge is in, again, 100 cubic feet. So same billing units as water. And then everybody has the estuary charge uh, that's 10% of the bill up to the cap. And then multifamily is effectively the same, except the fixed charge is discounted from the single family um, based on uh, household density assumptions. And similarly, the flow charge, uh, excuse me, the flow cap is 24 units rather than 30 units. Same flow rate per 100 cubic feet. Next slide. So the, the options we want to evaluate, um, this first bullet, uh, it's on the residential slide, but um, I think it's a, it's a mistake on my part. <clears throat> Again, you're recovering 25% of your fixed charges utility-wide, uh, excuse me, 25% of your rate revenues uh, utility-wide on the fixed charges, 75% on the variable charges. I think what for the similar reasons as to water, we want to maintain approximately that 25%, 75% split. For the variable charge on the residential side, so the, the current uh, structure, not only does it have the cap, but it's subject to this determination period. And the determination period is, uh, I always get it wrong, two periods over the, the winter um, that, that gets averaged and then is set for uh, the, the subsequent 12 months, the full year. And so the alternative you wanna look at is to to bill on actual water use in each period, but still subject to a cap. So we still have 
you know, we still know that if you're above X units of water per month, that's not going down the drain, it's probably going on uh, landscape. Um, and then the third uh, option would be based on actual water use in the billing period, but without a cap. So we know how to, we know how to uh, allocate our costs between our different customer classes, but when it goes to recovering it, we're just gonna recover it across all of your water use. And then between single family and multifamily, we have a similar um, question of, do we harmonize our uh, fixed charges in our caps or not? Next slide. <clears throat> okay. So for residential flow, again, the three that we want, the three alternatives here are um, keeping the existing rate structure with the determination period, actual period water use with a cap, actual period water use without a cap. So the things to consider for each. So it, the determination period, again, it's difficult to understand for customers. It's a, it's a communications challenge. It's also a challenge when you have account turnover and how do you set the determination period. Another challenge is that these, these charges are set for 12 months. And so from a certain standpoint, the customer doesn't have control over their bill. Um, it does reflect average winter water use. So it's not like we're, you know, we're not picking a high water use period, um, but it, it reflects average winter. And it does provide revenue stability because you know, you're setting it for the, for the long term. We don't have variability. Um, we go on to actual period water use with a cap. We're basing it on an account's individual water consumption. Uh, and it does acknowledge that there is some outdoor water demand within the rate structure because we do have the cap. Um, the flow rate, that dollar per uh, 100 cubic feet, it would be higher than the third alternative that doesn't have a cap because basically we're saying there are fewer sewer units to the treatment plant, so the, the flow uh, rate has to be higher. But it does solve this um, determination period headache, as I call it, um, which I know is not only is it difficult to understand on the customer side, but it's, um, it's, it seems a pain internally on the administration side. Um, and you're still providing revenue stability because we still have the cap. And not only are we not billing on all water use, but we still have the cap. So we're not subject to you know, reductions in really high water users use. Now the third alternative, actual period without a cap, uh, similar starting points, we're basing it on an account's water consumption, um, we're, we're billing it on total water use. The flow rate per unit would end up being lower than that second option, um, but um, it may increase revenue instability because if, if we're billing on all water use and we're capturing units from really high water users and they decide, or all and other people decide to reduce their water demand further, then we open ourselves up to some revenue instability. Um, so I think all that being said, and hopefully I haven't bored you to death with this slide, um, we'd be pushing towards the, the second option there, actual period water use with a cap, basically getting rid of our determination period, um, but still uh, having an appropriate cap on what's charged on the wastewater side. Next slide. So for multifamily, again, same uh, structure as single family, a fixed component and a variable flow component. And the fixed component, um, 
we can either have the same fixed charge as single family. So everybody pays $23 per month. Um, uh, sorry, lost my spot here. <clears throat> Um, and we could still have multifamily flow rates uh, different than single family. Or we can keep this differentiated fixed charge. And what we're saying there is that multifamily dwelling units are some fraction of single family. And this is in fact supported by both looking at our build sewer use data for Ventura Water, and when we really dig into the US Census data and occupancies by uh, dwelling unit type. Um, and in this case, our flow rates could be the same as single family, just like they are, uh, same unit cost. We're generating the same type of wastewater, the same strength of wastewater. And this would be consistent with our prior study. So this differentiated fixed charge would kind of be the status quo. And I think after our evaluation, that's um, that would be our recommendation. Next slide. So that was the fixed side for multifamily. Now onto the variable side. Uh, similarly, we can think of either amending to have the same wastewater cap as single family. And what we're saying there is that we're assuming that the discharge or the wastewater generation per dwelling unit is the same across all of our residential classes. So a dwelling, uh, an apartment generates the same amount of uh, wastewater flow as a condo, as a single family home. Um, but again, we've dug into the data and that's not exactly supported. It does look like um, both flow generation and household density um, is a fraction of single family. So the second option there, differentiated wastewater cap. Um, again, where we'd assume that multifamily is a fraction and, and they're in fact about 80% of the occupancy. So I think it's approximately 2.1 people per household rather than single family that's at 2.6. Um, and we would maintain the, the fixed charges as a fractional uh, as well. And so again, that second option is consistent with our prior study and, and would be our recommendation after evaluating. Next slide. Okay, on non-residential. <clears throat> so we have, we have six different non-residential groupings and these are grouped according to the strength, the assumed strength that they generate. So we go from things like offices uh, to uh, higher strength, like a, a restaurant, we have industrial users. Uh, in group six, we have nurseries, and then we have some special classes as well, churches, schools, industrial. So everybody uh, in groups one through six and then up to churches pays the same um, bi-monthly fixed charge. You can think of that as kind of a minimum charge that's equal to the single family fixed charge. We wanna make sure that everybody's at least paying that minimum. And I think we would maintain that in the um, update. And then the flow rates again, differentiated by the strength, both the flow and the strength that's generated by those different groups. Uh, charge per 100 cubic feet for our traditional groups. Uh, schools are a function of average daily attendance. That's ADA there. Um, industrial is uh, per million gallons generated or thousand pounds of our strength parameters. And then again, all these classes pay the estuary charge as well. Next slide. <clears throat> so rate options for the non-residential folks. I think the only change between our uh, 
groups one through six, uh, as far as changes would be evaluating if we can consolidate group three with group five. And this is really because uh, if, we can, if we can identify that strengths have changed um, and the fact that group three is very small, it's this very small user group, um, it might be um, prudent to group those two together and simplify um, the non-residential structure to some degree. But other than that, I, I think we, we would recommend maintaining the existing structure that we have because we have <clears throat> these, these very specific um, class differentiations um, that we can back up with um, strength data. Those groupings are, are based on the best available strength data that we have. Um, and so any changes to the flow rates are going to be dictated by two things, really. One, new wastewater generation patterns. So between all those users and single family users, and then the relative strength between the groups and also between the non-residential folks and our residential folks. And it might seem like, well, you know, we're not really proposing any changes. Things should be fairly similar, but in the last seven years or so since um, our last full cost of service analysis, think about how much um, demand reduction we've had on the residential side. And a lot of that has been indoor and still some, I guess, indoor. Um, and so what happens when you're using less water per fixture, fixture, the strength is going to go up. And so residential strengths have gone up. Um, we're updating strengths for non-residential folks to see what happened there. But we're basically, you know, there's going to be a rebalancing, basically, because the cost of service is a zero-sum game, and we're allocating some total costs between these different user groups. So our, um, our changes are all going to be driven by kind of the, the relative changes between all these different groups. Okay, uh, next slide. That is the end of my presentation, um, but I did want to acknowledge um, some questions that had come through from <clears throat> commissioners earlier in the week, um, and I just wanted to address those now. Um, one question asked if, on the water side, if the lowest water rate tier would include the least expensive supplies and the highest tier include the most expensive <coughs> supplies, <coughs> excuse me, or does it not need to? And the short answer is it doesn't need to. Um, frequently, we do differentiate our supply costs on the commodity rate um, to provide the lowest cost water for indoor and domestic needs. Um, but ultimately, it is a policy decision if you think of the city's sources as a blended supply to serve all um, under those conditions, then it can be appropriate to reflect that in the rates and have a blended or an average unit cost for supply um, for all users and all tiers of water. Uh, another question asked, um, says actual fixed costs are presumably higher than the proposed fixed cost components of the rates. How is this reconciled with cost of service requirements? <clears throat> and the simple answer is that so both water and wastewater utilities are overwhelmingly fixed cost operations, sometimes on the order of 70 or 80% or even more. And that is just unattainable for most agencies to be able to recover, you know, have their fixed rates recover 70 or 80% of their costs. Um, it in, obviously impacts affordability. 
um, and we lose any price signal on conservation or efficient water use. Um, 218, Proposition 218 doesn't tell us how we should recover our costs um, and how we develop our tiers and fixed and variable charges, only that we recover those costs that are actually incurred or, or plan to be incurred and that overall we're collecting the cost to serve. So we do have flexibility and we, we follow industry guidelines on what costs we recover from fixed sources, what costs are recovered from variable sources, and, and what costs we might split between the two. Uh, another question, what is proposed for the estuary fee? <clears throat> if it's to be included, how does it conform to cost of service requirements? Um, the estuary protection fee is really, a, again, a policy decision in this upper discussion. Um, it is proportional to the cost of service. So in that sense, um, you know, we're, we're recovering 10% of a customer's bill in the estuary protection charge. So absent the, the estuary protection charge, the rates are just gonna have to go up to recover it. And so it's really, you know, it's just where you recover those costs. They're gonna be recovered one way or another. The estuary, I think of this estuary protection fee as more of um, a messaging and a communication tool than it is about cost recovery. Um, but again, that fee is um, a, it's a policy decision and a policy discussion for your commission. And then the last uh, question is for conservation rates, what are the legal purposes to which a penalty rate can be put? Um, I had heard that it had to be for drought response actions like expanded water use efficiency. So the first thing I want to say is that penalties are outside of um, the world of Prop 218. Their penalties are not rates, and we're not trying to recover our costs. We're not trying to generate revenues from penalties. These are things to dissuade behavior um, or to enforce things like um, irrigation schedules, right? So we're trying to change behavior. We're not trying to um, uh, recover our costs. So on the drought rate side, as I mentioned earlier in the presentation, we need to identify what's the net change in our costs as we progress through each one of our shortage stages um, so that there's a nexus between those costs and ultimately the, the rates or, excuse me, the drought surcharges um, a penalty would be something like, again, an irrigation ordinance that says you can only water on certain days and, and we don't need it to be cost-based. I know there are kind of maximum penalties or um, maximums on those that you can um, extend to customers, but ultimately it's, it's not a recovery of cost mechanism. Those are the questions um, and that does conclude my presentation and I will send it back to staff and happy to answer questions. Thank you. Okay. Uh, thank you, Kevin. Uh, very extensive. I'm guessing there's going to be quite a few questions and comments. Let's begin with Susan Mulligan. I have one question and then one request. Um, the question <laughs> is, What's the rationale for uniform rates for the uh, non-residential customers? Um, it seems like they don't have the same incentive for efficient water use that the residential ones do. What would yeah. be the challenges with doing that, say, based on meter size or something? What, how, how does that work? How'd that get decided? Yeah, so meter size, I, I think that's, an, it is an approach. Um, <clears throat> normally the challenge with non-residential is that it's, uh, 
it's not a homogenous bunch, right? Single family users, even multifamily users, we use water for very specific purposes. Everybody uses water fairly similarly. On the non-residential side, you might have, um, you know, you might have an office building with multiple suites versus, uh, uh, you know, a small restaurant. And so the, the water needs are just so varied across non-residential or commercial users that it makes it very difficult um, to identify. There are some other options. Um, you know, there are a couple of agencies that have water budget structures for commercial users, <clears throat> which I don't think, uh, you know, I don't, I don't particularly like that. Um, what the city of Santa Barbara does and a couple others is that they do it based on like a historical allocation. Um, so in a sense, it's like a two tier, but it's really just a historical allocation is your tier one and then anything greater than that is a tier two. But again, you get into issues of, you know, land use changes or building changes and so forth. So for all those reasons, generally um, non-residential folks are uniform. The exception would be irrigation, where oftentimes you'll see, you know, they're, they're the prime candidates for a water budget rate structure, because if we know the meter service area and we can identify the landscape area, you can identify what's the efficient use on that parcel or on that meter service area and designate an allocation in tier one for that use and then anything greater in tier two. Okay, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, the request that I have, maybe comes at the end of the commissioner comments, you put a lot of things out there as options and I'm a bit overwhelmed and not necessarily feeling like I am smart enough are knowledgeable enough to really weigh in on a lot of them. I'd be interested in yours and staff's recommendations about which way to go on these various uh, items. Thank you. Thank you, Susan. Uh, Suzanne? Uh, I guess my general question uh, to Kevin and to Susan would be, um, it's not my impression that when we did the exercises of establishing priorities, that those priorities were materially different um, than those that have been established the last time we did our study. So, unless I'm mistaken in that assertion, why are we revisiting um, so many of these variables in terms of trying to decide? Are we going to say here? Suzanne, sorry, you're breaking up. Yeah, she's breaking up. So, um, I don't think. I don't think anyone really understood what you were saying because something was weird with the audio, Suzanne. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna go to Gerhardt and see if something can be fixed and I'll come back to you. Okay, Gerhardt? Yeah, I just have uh, one question and it's maybe it's just a clarification I heard um, and it revolves around the estuary charge. And I brought up this issue in the past. It's just not clear to me. I understand it's on the current rates. What is being proposed for it um, moving forward? That that specific charge was established in regard in, in um, reaction to the settlement and funded all the studies and then the work. Um, but really, the the outcome of that is we have the Ventura Water Cure Project. So um, I just like to understand or clarify: is this being proposed to be carried forth? And if so, why? And what's the rev ramification? If not, if the answer is no, then of course, you don't need to go any more explanation. Um, Akbar, I don't know, Akbar and Susan, if you'd like 
me to take that first, or if you'd like to. Everyone, once you start, and then perhaps we can fill in behind you. <clears throat> sure. So, correct the the SRA protection charge, um, as best I understand the history, is that it was developed for the kind of first iteration or what has now become uh, Ventura Water Pure. And as I mentioned, the estuary the protection charge is really a messaging and communications tool at this point. Those costs would be recovered or would be required to be recovered absent the estuary protection charge. So I think our starting point is to continue the estuary protection charge as is. Um, we develop rates absent uh, or with the with the estuary protection charge revenue in its own bucket um, being generated. The alternative would be to, if you chose to um, nix the the fee, then those costs would go into the big bucket for wastewater and would be divvied up accordingly and would find their way into the rates. Um, from a practical standpoint, as far as customer impacts, I don't think we're going to see too much of a difference because Again, it's simply you know, a, a percentage of a customer's bill, um, the fee is for that matter. And so it becomes, in my mind at least, a policy decision if you intend to keep this fee for a purpose or you rescind it and it just finds its way into the rates. Um, with that said, I, I think I would defer to staff and, and maybe Mr. Hogan um, who has much more of the um, history of this fee than I do. So let me just piggyback on Kevin's comments and, and if Miles wants to uh, add anything, you sure can. The, the estuary protection fee, as Kevin mentioned, if that were to, it's a policy decision on behalf of the commission to recommend if we want to continue it, but if it were to be discontinued, it would, that revenue would need to be then generated by the rates itself which means the 6% has been quoted during the financial plan portion of the presentation. Uh, we need to go up to recover whatever's lost. Um, the purpose of that is to, is to um, address our estuary needs. I and mean, Interwater Pure is obviously front and center when it comes to doing that. We'll be paying for Interwater Pure, whether through cash reserves or just by paying our debt service for the next several decades. Um, We'll be paying for Ventura Water Pier, you know, going forward. And so, from a from a practicality standpoint, one could argue: well, you're collecting the estuary fee and you're applying it towards wastewater's portion of the ongoing debt service. And Miles, if, is there anything from a legal standpoint that is worthy of adding there? Uh, no, thank you, Akbar. I was I was just going to mention I agree with. Uh, what Kevin shared uh, with regarding uh, cost of service principles and uh, it primarily being at this point a, um, a customer messaging uh, uh, piece because otherwise uh, these fees are going to be uh, collected through the rates um, one way or another. For a little bit of history during the last rate process, uh, the fee slowly went up as a percentage of uh, the wastewater bill. So it um, went up from 6% to 8% and then stayed at 10% thereafter. 
And so I think that staff's recommendation is to uh, keep that at the uh, 10% uh, for consistency and for continued messaging that um, uh, a portion of the wastewater costs on each bill are necessary uh, to fund for those regulatory requirements to comply with the, uh, both the permit and the consent decree um, for the environmental needs of the estuary. So I, I understand the explanation. I, I don't I don't agree with the, it moving forward and in this current rate structure we're talking about. Um, it, it's a policy issue, but it's also a perception issue. When I get my bill from Ventura Water and I see the specific charge and there was an explanation when it was put on the charge, it made sense to me at that time. You're gonna move forward and you want uh, support for a rate increase. Folks need to understand and, and, and have a willingness to know what they're getting for their money, not a, a remnant charge that will stay on their bill for at least five years if we go forward with this, and maybe longer because it just becomes essentially a fee or a tax that continues indefinitely when the original purpose has then expired. Now, you have a project, an outcome of, of the studies that were funded with this money, why not be transparent with the ratepayers and just call it and say, this is a project, this project is being required by the regulatory agencies, it's necessary for our water portfolio, and this is the cost. And then the, the, the ratepayers then can decide and understand exactly what they're getting paid with the money that they pay on a monthly basis. So a pretty strong opinion about this. I don't know how my other commissioners feel about it, but um, I, I do want to put that out there. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I, I um, well, I won't comment just yet, but I think those are very, uh, very pithy uh, comments. I understand Suzanne is back online and uh, let's hear from her now, Suzanne. All right, sorry for the robot voice earlier, not sure what happened. Hopefully it's better now. It's better um, now. What I was trying to ask was, it was not my impression when we did the homework exercise in the spring to establish priorities, that those priorities were materially different from those that had been established the last time we did the rate study seven years ago. If that's correct, I guess my question is, why are we revisiting, for example, the tier structure and the approach on all these various aspects? What, what is it we're trying to do? Are we trying to streamline administrative functions once rates are enacted and therefore we could expect to see cost savings on an administrative basis? Is there something that's not working? Or is it just, we're doing a rate study so we're gonna go through the whole kit and caboodle again from a structure standpoint? I think yeah. I can give the answer, but uh, Akbar or Miles, you want sure. to take about this? Yeah, Commissioner I, I think you hit at least one point on the head, and that is this is an opportunity to check in with the community, to check in with the commission and the council to reaffirm that the uh, what we felt were policy objectives way back when are still policy objectives today. So that's first and foremost. The, the second one is we have a little bit more capability, technologically speaking. Something that was not available to us last time you all did this was the ability to bill volumetrically on the wastewater side. Just because we didn't have the smart meters in place and now we're about 80% deployed across the city. Um, so we really did the sewer determination period out of necessity 
because it was the, the next best thing to a, uh, a fixed charge, might've been the only other option at the time. Now we actually have the ability to build sewer based on how much water you're using. So that's another option that's worthy of consideration, something that we didn't have some time ago. Okay, so then a follow-up question would be with regard to the option presented on slide 36, where on the wastewater, we talk about a residential variable charge where the it's possibly based on actual water use in each billing period subject to a cap. How are we proposing that those caps are gonna be determined? Because obviously the cap that's applicable for my house on a given lot size might be entirely different than that for grant. Um, so how is that determined? Because that was one thing we tried to stay away from last time was getting into the micromanaging of your household size, my household size, you know, and so on. Absolutely. Kevin, maybe you can address a couple of different methodologies for how we institute a cap. Yeah, we, so the current cap is based on, um, as you say, Commissioner uh, McCombs, a assumption of kind of, we'll say, uh, greatest household size. I think we were at uh, seven or eight for a single family user and six or seven for a multifamily user. And so we're really just trying to get to what's the Kind of the practical upper limit um, where we're capturing almost everyone or everyone within that class um, that we could reasonably expect to go down the drain and and not be um, irrigation use we can look at other things we can look at um sure i don't know like func uh, function of um, winter use or um, we can look at the differentials between winter and summer use and try and parse out um, a cap there we could look at um, we can look at water use data within the class and, and kind of see where do we capture, um, say, 90 or 95% of folks. I'll, I'll be honest, I, we haven't um, opened up kind of where we end up with a cap um, other than where we landed last time. Um, so I think that the cap and where it actually ends up is still um, open for discussion. Okay. Thank, thank you for your answers. I, the reason for my questions is I think that there are going to be a lot of questions from the public when we get to the point of taking this out there. And the more changes there are from the prior structure, in my mind, there's just that much more messaging that Haley and her crew's got to work on. There's the, here's how it's different from what you're paying now. Here's why it's different. Here's the increase. How much is Ventura water pure? And so if there's not a specific problem we're trying to solve, my recommendation would be if it's equitable, we stick with the methodology that we have in place. If there is something we can solve that makes it more efficient or it's more equitable, then that's obviously worth doing. But I think we're gonna have a hard time covering all the messages we have to cover. So I'd like that to be as simple as possible for our collective efforts. Absolutely, thank you. Thank you, Suzanne. Ms. Nova, anything? Uh, well, it, it's a lot to absorb. Um, I do have a question on the estuary fee. I'm not sure it's appropriate for this meeting. I, I don't really know what it was for historically, what it's done. Um, I'm probably not alone amongst people, you know, in the citizenry would have similar questions. Uh, so we might want to, uh, if we keep it, as uh, Gebhardt was pointing out, um, 
be ready to explain what that fee has accomplished and what's going forward with it. And if we do, assuming we implement Water Pure and that resolves uh, eventually the um, problem with the estuary, with discharge to the estuary, then that fee or that 10% will, I would assume, go away. Uh, but uh, that's going to be some years out, I, I would imagine. Anyway, I, I don't know if we want to belabor that any further here at this meeting. This is a lot to absorb. And uh, so <laughs> I don't have any specific questions other than that one comment. Thank you. Thank you, Nova. Hey, Miles, just for fun, could you give us a 60-second background on what led to the estuary fee, if you can? Yes. Yes, and I should have shared that in my answer earlier. So the, the revenues collected from the Estuary Protection Fund, uh, they're kept in a separate reserve, and they're used um, for planning and studies and facilities that now have led to the Ventura Water Pier project. So if you'll recall, uh, the city was challenged in 2008 and 2009 over its discharge of wastewater to the Santa Clara River estuary. And that ultimately led to a settlement uh, with Wishtoyo Foundation and Heal the Bay uh, in 2012, uh, where the city agreed to study the appropriate amount of discharge that would go to the Santa Clara River estuary and then divert the, uh, that appropriate amount uh, to beneficial reuse. And it was required to implement a diversion infrastructure project in order to comply with that consent decree. These requirements also became part of the city's requirements under its NPDES permit or the permit for its wastewater treatment facility. So as part of that settlement, uh, the decision was made to establish this fee that would help collect funds for the planning for that uh, diversion infrastructure project and ultimately the facilities um, to construct to the project. Ultimately, the city ended up going with a project that went above the original cost envisioned um, with that settlement agreement. And part of that is because uh, the city is also um, gaining a water supply benefit. Uh, from the Ventura Water Pier project. And if you'll recall this summer, we went over the split between how much of Ventura Water Pier would be funded by wastewater versus water. So the funds uh, that are in the uh, Estuary Protection Fund uh, have been used for the studies uh, thus far, and then they will also be applied uh, toward the construction of the Ventura Water Pier project. And uh, the commissioners are correct. Eventually it would sunset. Uh, I think the staff proposal was to continue to have it in uh, this rate process and on the next set of bills, just because there are additional funds um, to collect for the project. So I think that was the initial uh, rationale with keeping it uh, during this uh, five-year rate process. Thank you, Miles. That's very helpful. Um, and I think um, 
I see more clearly now that that is a, a policy decision and uh, I would support keeping it based on that description. Uh, thank you. Uh, and that was, go ahead, I'm sorry. I was just gonna say, and that was helpful feedback. So we'll, uh, we'll think about the messaging that may be added to um, our materials into the website to further explain that charge. I'm just I'm just curious. Even in a in a 218 vote, how do you explain the benefit when it was originally established at a, at a certain point? The studies have been completed and the planning level work has been completed. But you can continue a, a charge without the, the specific benefit unless you change the title and the name of the specific fee. Uh, Commissioner Hubner, it was not just for the planning and the studies. The charge was also established for the actual construction of the facilities themselves. And so those are the facilities that still need to be paid for for the construction of Ventura Water Pier. I, I understand that, but it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a means of how it's, it's presented to the public when it was originally, uh, and it's, it's continued to be established and continued without uh, an expiration date. Well, thank you for those comments. And I think we can confer with uh, our rate consultant on how best to uh, evaluate uh, the sunset of that uh, uh, portion on the bill and how that's uh, included on the bill if uh, the decision is made to keep it. I don't know if Akbar, if you have any other yeah. comments to add. Miles, I think you've, you've said it well already, but I, I think ultimately this is a, this is a policy decision for the, the commission to take up if they, if they so choose to. Um, as, as Miles has mentioned, it's, it's staff's recommendation to keep it simply because it's still meeting the merits of what it was established for. Uh, Miles pointed out it, it's for the planning and also construction of, which is what we're about to embark on. And so it's still very relevant. Now, if we were speaking five years from now, um, staff's recommendation may be different. Uh, ultimately, the commission is up to, uh, it's up to them whether you'd like to continue this practice or not, um, knowing that if it were to be discontinued, we'd still need to raise the revenue. However, it would mean an increase in that 6% I couldn't tell you off the top of my head today what exactly that would translate to, um, but that's something Kevin and his team could do if the commission wishes. Um, but again, purely policy decision and staff can, can message this to the public in either case, but that's our recommendation is to retain it. Thank you, Akbar. Uh, personally, um, um, I think that um, litigation and settlements and consent decrees are dreadful ways to make water policy, but it's obviously not our choice, and we're kind of stuck with uh, with what, whoever handled that uh, that uh, that litigation. But uh, anyway, uh, Jim, do you have anything? I had just very interesting discussion about the SOA protection charge. I always wondered what it was on the bill. I was always confounded, but I think the main thing is. If we keep the ratepayers informed on what's going on, uh, what is it about? Where is it going to go? How is it going to change your rates later? What is it going to look like when it's no longer 10% of the bill? It's actually a higher percentage on uh, your actual water rate. So 
um, education is a key, I think. Thank you, Jim. Uh, anyone else? I, I'd like to weigh in on uh, this. Hey, I uh, I have concerns about the estuary fee because it sends a message that the cost of the project is the same as 10% of the bill. And unless we really calculate out the cost of protecting the estuary, it's a signal that's wrong. Um, I also feel like there are lots of regulatory mandates. One could argue that the entire wastewater plant was built to protect the estuary. So I think it's just confusing um, and I, I don't buy the argument that the rates go up anymore. The rates just go up however much they go up. You're just describing them differently. Um, so I, I would support getting rid of it. I think it's 10% isn't net. If we want to calculate the actual cost to build water pure and call it that, maybe that's something, but I, I'm not comfortable with the charge. Uh, hearing that uh, from my friend, uh, Susan Mulligan, I, I have to agree with her. Um, but uh, I have a question, Miles. We're not, uh, you're not asking for action on this tonight, are you? Um, I think I would direct that to Akbar and Kevin and Susan. I think there are some, uh, some recommendations uh, in a few areas. I think they generally have a sense of what they recommend, um, but I think there's a few locations where they are looking for feedback so that they can um, uh, actually have the preliminary rates prepared for the next meeting. So I'll, I'll turn it over to Akbar. Yeah, let me let me help uh, address your question, Commissioner Burton. Um, regard if there is a if there is a will to eliminate the estuary protection charge, um, the direction we would need from the commission tonight is that we would uh, that we need to evaluate what that does to the wastewater charge. And uh, Commissioner Mulligan's comment, um, I, don't, I just want to make myself clear. It's not that we would have to collect more per se if it goes away. It's that we would have to collect the same amount of revenue and that the percentage, the 6% that we quoted earlier, that would probably need to go up. And that's the part we would need to come back to you all with uh, about the, the exact amount it goes up by. Um, procedurally, um, Miles, I may ask you to chime in again, but procedurally, if we did want the commission to um, give us direction on this item tonight. Is that something the chair could direct staff to go do, or is that something that this commission would need to vote on? Um, yes, you could either do an informal feedback or you could actually make motions on each of the items that you'd like feedback on. So whichever is your preference, Akbar. I prefer informal feedback. Okay. Uh, Akbar, um, uh, I think that um, this is a rate study and we have to be careful about what's the record, <clears throat> essentially. So um, I would say informal feedback is the best way to go. Um, at the end of the day, the rate payer is going to pay the same amount of money, whether it's in a estuary fee or whatever it's called or not. But I, I know from First time I saw on the bill, it bugged me. It's been bugging me ever since. So I'm not sure if that's been um, 
uh, surveyed with the public, but uh, I think that's uh, maybe it's time to sunset that myself. And that's my feedback. You've heard from uh, Susan and Gerhardt as well. And so maybe um, adjusting that might be a good way to go and come back in December and show us what that might look like. <clears throat> okay. Does that work for everyone? Okay. Um, we'll, we'll do just that. Thank you. Thank you, Akbar. All right. Anything else on this particular item? Just so, Commissioner Burton, I just want to make sure that we're hitting the, the mark when we come back to you in December. Um, obviously, there's the piece about the estuary charge. We, we got clear direction there on what to do. Um, as far as the, the policy options that were in front of you regarding the rate structure, um, I just want to make sure Kevin has what he needs to come back. Um, I think what I heard from the, the majority of the commission tonight and I think Commissioner McComb summed it up nicely is that we don't recommend changing anything unless it's addressing customer equity or staff efficiency. Is that kind of the, the theme of which we should operate under? Suzanne? That sums up my comments nicely. I'm not sure if the other commissioners agree, but thank you for summarizing what I said. Well, I agree with them. Anyone else? I agree. Is that Gerhard good? Yeah. I agree with that as well. Susan Mulligan? Yes. <laughs> I love it. Okay. You said Yeah, if I can clarify one last thing, and again, this is purely in the uh, interest of getting it right when we come back. Um, of all the policy options, I think Kevin made a recommendation with each one as he was flipping through them and I saw some heads nodding. So I think we're in general alignment uh, on most of them, if not all of them. And the one that I think would be a departure from the norm or historic practice would be the transitioning away from a sewer determination charge and moving towards a volumetric charge for sewer. Just so I understand correctly, did I capture the mood Okay, that yes, that is a transition we want to make or at least explore for December 15th. I would, I would say so if that's what staff thinks would work well. Okay. Okay. All right, very good. Kevin, do, you, do you have what you need to proceed with uh, you and your team? Yes, I think I do. Okay. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you all. Kevin and Susan, what a tremendous amount of work, and uh, it's not an easy process, but it's worthwhile. I hope we end up with a bulletproof uh, rate structure and uh, increases and all that. So thank you again. All right. Thank you. So uh, that concludes uh, item three. We go to public comment. I understand there is a public comment now. Yes, Grant, we do have one public comment. Hey, Bert. Hey, what's going on? Can you hear me? We can. Um, regarding the last comments that were on this last topic you had, I thought about something that uh, maybe hasn't been addressed that I think should be looked at. And the building in this city is going much more to a condominium type operation where you have outside watering by the condominium complex that's there. I think that is something that needs to be looked at as a potential way for rate studies because it doesn't fit into a family or a residential area. It doesn't fit into a, 
apartment complex. It's an entirely different animal than that. So I think that needs to be looked at because you've got a difference there on what's going on. Now, the, the thing that I was bringing up is listening to everything that's been going on with the uh, information in regards to the conveyance issue. I listened to United, they went with 50%. I listened today to Casitas, they don't know what they're gonna do yet. So consequently, that's still up in the air. Now, I went through and did an analysis, Susan McCombs was asking about the costs. If you took the total cost for the 100% and you got 100% of the water, it would cost you $97 per acre foot. With the 100 plus, it would cost 101 per acre foot. If you went at 60%, it's 162 for that amount and 168 for the 100 plus. If you dropped it down to 35% allocation, it would cost you $279 an acre foot and $289 with a plus option. Now, the way I look at the plus and the regular option is that gives the city of Ventura more water to sell. And I guarantee you, we'll get more water money out of that than the cost of that cost for $289. I believe that still should be looked at very, very closely by the commission. Thank you. Thank you, Bert. Appreciate it. Okay, uh, next is uh, Commissioner Communications. Any, anything on that, commissioners? I don't think there is anything. So uh, Susan, general manager report. Yes, I do have a few things. Um, I just wanted to give you a little bit of information on outreach. We did revise some of the language on our rates uh, website. Um, there were some questions on that. So we did some revisions. We also continue to get questions and we're updating our um, FAQs on there, um, frequently asked questions. A little bit on our staffing, um, just to let you know, we we did uh, lose uh, a management analyst at Wastewater, but we have a new one who just started this week. So we're very excited about that. In our finance and technology department, uh, there is a Ventura water position that we pay for now. And that person has been hired. We met her today. Very excited to, to see her there. Um, she's helping with Lucidity, our SCADA system and Questa a lot of our technology issues, because we do have a lot of technology here with it we utilize. Um, biologist interviews are underway. Um, we do have the water utility manager recruitment out on the street and the program director for Ventura Water Pier should be out on the street soon. So we're excited about that. The only bad news is our water distribution crew. We are losing a few people there, unfortunately, um, but we're looking for um, new people there. Um, a little bit of stuff about past council items that you might want to um, go take a look at. We just did last night, we had an infrastructure operations update on the post Thomas fire. Um, Chief Indaya and myself gave a presentation. So um, that might be something for you to look at. Again, that was last night. Also the general plan update was on there and they are, the city is doing a lot of outreach for the, the general plan update. And there is a bunch of information on our website so you can go take a survey, or if you'd like to be on that, um, an, another uh, commission or group to look at stuff that's um, available for you. Um, and that's about it. Next agenda items for Tuesday, December 15th, we're gonna be looking at rates and drought rates as we talked about today, finalizing those up. 
And then we'll probably have a short presentation on the urban water management plan and our water shortage contingency event plan update. Those kind of go hand in hand. And then also, I believe we're going to do a conservation update. And that ends my report. Okay, thank you, everyone. Um, again, the next meeting is uh, December 15th, and I'm going to adjourn, hopefully less colorfully than last time. Uh, again, <laughs> thank you, everyone. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.